Hello everyone, this is Maz. If you're hearing this message, it means you're not part of the Voices of War subscriber community and will only hear the first half of the episode. If that's enough, then I'm thrilled. However, if you're looking to dive deeper into the complexities of war, please consider subscribing to our private feed by using the link at the top of the show notes. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of our episodes, the ability to ask follow-up questions, and we'll become part of an exclusive community that makes this show possible. I hope you'll make the decision to join us today. One of the things with complex systems that you realize when you start reading about them and studying them, not just in foreign affairs, but but just in general, is that when you try to intervene in a system, you're going to generate unintended consequences. The military industrial complex came out of World War II, and it is the interplay between the private sector and Congress and government bureaus and special interests, the defense sector. And the entire industry is based on these entanglements between these actors. If you saw your family and friends killed by occupiers, are you going to like that government for the rest of your life or view them as the worst of the worst? The idea of the Department of Defense is a huge misnomer. People may not realize before the Department of Defense rebranding after World War II, it was called the Department of War, which is much more accurate. My guest today is Dr. Christopher Coyne, who is a professor of economics at George Mason University and the associate director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center. He's the author of five books and numerous academic articles, book chapters, and policy studies. He joins me today to discuss his latest book, In Search of Monsters to Destroy, The Folly of American Empire and the Paths to Peace, which is a pragmatic and unashamedly critical appraisal of American foreign policy. I've just finished this excellent book, and given my stance on war more broadly, most of our listeners won't be surprised to hear that I really enjoyed it, and that I'm very much looking forward to this chat. So on that note, Chris, thank you for joining me on The Voices of War. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. So as I've just alluded to in the, uh, in kind of before we started recording, I've just finished a, a In Search of Monsters to Destroy, and it's an incredible read. Uh, and I think I mean, it, it might be worth mentioning, I think because it is a controversial book, uh, I think you've done an exceptional, it was an excep- exceptionally smart move to have all the praise, or at least part of the praise uh, for the book uh, right up the front, because there's certainly, uh, uh, there's certainly some prominent names uh, that have uh, given it hard praise. Uh, so firstly, thank you for writing it. And I think it's a very, very timely book, given uh, what's going on in the world at the moment. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I'm grateful. You know, when I started it, a lot of my research and scholarship um, really, I was influenced by the, the war on terror, the September 11th attacks. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, so when I was writing it, it was before the, the Russian, inv- most recent Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, uh, but uh, certainly the topics are timely. So, uh, and, and, and praise to the publisher, the Independent Institute, for putting the, the uh, blurbs up front that you mentioned. Mm. That was mm. their, their strategy. So I'm grateful to them for thinking about that. Yeah, well, I, I, think it's, I think it's very clever because I think it is, as I said, it's a controversial book. And given what, well, what's happening in the world at the moment, especially what's happening in Ukraine, it's very easy to nudge us ever so slightly uh, towards militarism uh, as the solution to these particular problems. But you, 
the, I do want to pick up on on how it all started, uh, and you did uh, mention that it was around September 11. So, can you describe that a little bit? What motivated your, I guess, move firstly into academia? Why economics, and then you, you know, this is geopolitics uh, ultimately through a lens of of an economist. Uh, so, yeah. uh, maybe some background on that. Yes, yeah, certainly, certainly. Thank you for asking. So, I grew up in northern New Jersey, right outside New York City. I went to undergraduate in New York City, and I studied. At first, I was studying finance and marketing um, until mm. I got introduced to a professor my third year who changed my life, introduced me to economics in a way I hadn't been introduced to. So that was the impetus behind my introduction and ultimately my passion for economics. Mm. Um, but uh, you know, after I graduated, I worked in finance on Wall Street. Um, right. And for okay. uh, so I worked there for two years before going back to get my PhD at George Mason, which is in. Um, Northern Virginia, right outside the uh, Washington D.C., and I'll come back to that in a moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and for part of that time after college, I lived in, in in across the river, and I would take the path train into the World Trade Centers, and then walk to to, to Wall Street. Right. And so I started graduate school in two thousand one, so August two thousand one. So oh. so three weeks before the nine eleven attack. So I had just come from New York City, literally going into the World Trade Centers every day, and then walking down to my office, and then I moved to to Northern Virginia. And, um, of course, the Pentagon is about 13 miles from where I'm sitting right now. Mm, and so the mm. 9-11 attacks happen. The United States government, of course, responds with the what's broadly called the war on terror, including the invasions and occupations in Afghanistan and Iraq. And um, something rubbed me the wrong way kind of from the start with those both of those invasions and occupations. And, and what rubbed me the wrong way as an academic was – the way they were being talked about in Washington, D.C., which is a very, you know, kind of simple problem. We're just going to go over, get rid of the bad people, mm. spread democracy and liberty. They're gonna, we're going to be welcome as liberators. And so I started thinking, well, wait a second. There's very basic things I think about as an economist. What incentives do people face? What knowledge mm. do you need to actually design and implement policies? Can you just design a, a, a democracy and, and, and just drop it down on people? And so I started studying these things, and that turned into my dissertation, my first book uh, on, on U.S. Efforts, efforts to Export Democracy. Uh, mm. And I've been working on it ever since. It's a, it's a topic I'm quite passionate about, and um, I think it's interesting and fascinating and troubling, uh, but also I think there's reason for optimism and because there's – you know, the flip side of conflict and violence is peace. Mm. Uh, and so to, 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 to pursue peace, you have to understand all these really messy and um, troubling topics. Uh, but I, I, you know, I think it's, it's worthy of study and something I've, I've dedicated most of my academic career to for the last 20 years. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and and I think it's important to echo there that uh, neither war nor peace are, are, are predetermined, right? It's the upstream causes that will lead us down to that particular path, and and this brings me to a question that's, that that really strikes me as interesting in the fact that you said that you've worked in Wall Street, uh, which is the hyper capitalized, uh, uh, I guess, world, and uh, and and you know when you're talking about incentives, followed immediately by nine eleven. It strikes me as uh, as peculiar, perhaps, that uh, you you were you became critical uh, as opposed to as ninety nine percent of the population kind of sided with. Well, uh, you know, we need to solve this problem and, and react in a way that might some might call even emotional and and angry and revengeful. I find it interesting that you kind of went the other way to to look at this in a more pragmatic uh, sense. So 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 was there something? 
uh, in your life prior to that that's that's already shaped you towards this kind of thinking, or, or was it you know nine eleven and 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 post nine eleven US uh, that kind of uh, uh, opened your eyes a little bit, so to speak? Yeah, so so a lot of it actually was my introduction to economics, and so after I mm. I, I, I was introduced during college, I started reading a ton of stuff on my own. And so most of my prior economic education came from self-study. Um, mm. When I was first introduced to those ideas up through getting my entering graduate school in 2001, because as I mentioned, I worked for two years. And when you start to internalize the economic way of thinking, you realize the importance of incentives, but also the importance of true humility in terms of how little we know about the world and mm. how little we can actually shape the world. And so you, you begin to realize that most people, and, and again, sitting outside Washington, D.C., where I am now, it's kind of the epicenter of, irregardless of political party, policies are viewed as things that need to fix people. We mm. need to design better policies to fix some problem in the world. And there's a underlying set of, uh, of, of often tacit, meaning unspoken, assumptions behind that. One of it, them being that a small group of supposed experts possess knowledge that's superior to people on the ground, mm. uh, that, is, that they somehow know how the world lo should look, and that they can design and implement this grand plan. And so that same logic that holds domestically holds internationally at a much broader scale, which is why even though the topics I'm talking about in this book are oftentimes viewed as either political science or public policy or international relations, which is a subfield in political science, of course, I really think economics has a lot to offer because when you start thinking about the economic way of thinking applied to that, it, it offers a set of insights that I think are complementary to those other disciplines, but also kind of really makes clear the limitations of what can be accomplished. Yeah. And in our efforts to do good, you know, I, there's usually this kind of drive to do good, as you were putting, it's very emotional. And, and you can see why. I mean, when you see these situations of conflict and people getting hurt, our first urge often is to, we must do something to help them. And I get that urge. And I, I think it often, not always, but often is motivated by good intentions. But if we're not careful, especially in those moments of, of high emotion and the urge to do good, more often than not, you end up doing more harm than good. Mm. And so appreciating the limits of what you can do is oftentimes, I believe, more important than laying out this kind of grand vision about what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely. There was so many things that you said there that uh, I'd like to touch on uh, as, as we go through the conversation. The first thing that really strikes me is this uh, naivety about technical solutions that, you know, we can merely install a program uh, into a society and, uh, you know, the function of if then, if then, if then will just, uh, you know, carry forward and the outcome will be as predetermined. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we are yet to see that work. Uh, and, and the amount of times I've said that on the podcast, you know, we haven't really, when I say we, the West more broadly and, and obviously led by the US and Australia, certainly, you know, tied to the hip uh, with the US in every war, um, uh, certainly since World War II, we haven't really won one. Uh, and that's, uh, that should serve as some warning that, hey, we don't necessarily understand what goes on uh, and what the fog of war might create. Uh, but the other thing that I really, really want to touch on is uh, this idea of incentives. Uh, and firstly, what do you mean by incentives? Um, and then how does that apply to such a grand narrative or grand idea as war? Sure. So when economists talk about incentives at the most basic level, so put aside all the foreign policy mm -hmm. stuff we're talking about, just as a general concept, 
incentives are simply the the idea that people respond to changes in costs and benefits. So if I mm. perceive the benefits of an action to increase, I'll engage in more of that behavior or else constant and vice versa. And people are natural born economists. Uh, from the youngest age, think about you know when you're a kid, uh, your guardian, they create incentives for you. If yeah. you do certain things, you get rewarded. If you do other things, you get punished. I've got a three-year-old. Uh, uh, that is yeah. my life. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Sir, I have a three-year-old as well. So, so you and I are in the same boat. And they, they don't always listen to the, to the no, incentives, but, but they, we try. We try. <laughs> um, right. and, and, uh, and, and that's throughout life. So then you start taking that and you start applying it to all different areas of life. And it certainly doesn't answer all questions, but it does provide one set of kind of eyeglasses through which to view the world and make sense of a lot of things. Mm, mm. Because when we want to understand why people are behaving the way they are now, but also how they either may or may not behave, because of course, when we try to induce changes in behavior through policy, really, we're trying to create incentives, or we will create incentives even if we don't intend to. And so then you start applying that to all different things. And so the way I think about it is the logic of incentives can apply within the domestic apparatus that carries out foreign interventions. So we can look at the incentives that apply all throughout the U.S. government from elected officials to bureaucrats, to special interest groups, to the mm -hmm. voting uh, members of the, the polity, the voters. Then you start moving abroad and you say, well, what incentives do the various stakeholders pick an area that's being intervened upon? What incentives yeah. do they face? And then regional actors and then international organizations like the United Nations or the World Bank and then international NGOs. And it gets really messy really quickly. Mm -hmm. But if anything, that should, to my way of thinking, give pause to, to, as you put it quite nicely, that there's kind of a simple technocratic solution. Because even if you have the most well-formulated plan by the most intelligent experts, however they're defined, there's so many steps involved between that design and the implementation that there's there's a lot of space for various kind of decision nodes and stakeholders at those no nodes to do things that are going to influence the outcome in a different direction than than what the well-intentioned designers will call them intended. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, that's music to my ears and, and certainly something that I, uh, I address in part in some of my own uh, personal teachings and uh, when looking at motivations, uh, you know, we, we, we know that all behavior is motivated by something. Uh, and if you understand the motivation, in other words, the incentive, what is incentivizing uh, particular behavior, you know, you can actually uh, start understanding why that behavior occurs. Um, okay, so so maybe that's um that's a nice pivot then to 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 the book, and I think we'll circle back uh, onto incentives a number of times because I think it's a it's a very clear red thread uh, throughout the book and an important one. Uh, but who who did you write this book for, and perhaps what it's firstly what is the book's main thesis, uh, and then who did you actually write it for? Sure. So so the main kind of thrust of the book is I want people to reconsider the nature of American empire and America's role in the international space. And certainly in America, but I'd say I'll call it the West more broadly, there's this kind of acceptance that there, it's, it's a very Hobbesian view of the world, that the world's a, a negative someplace, that the, the world, people are inherently violent left to their own devices, absent some Leviathan that brings order. And there has to be someone to do it, and well, it might as well be us. So you had Britain prior to the British Empire, prior to to America, and now now America, and of course you hear this language of 
the the rules-based order that's been created and enforced by the American government um, in the wake of the world wars. And, and it's all kind of this language of control by an entity. And so I'm trying to get people to rethink that and to recognize at least that there's another side to it, even if they disagree with all the arguments in the book, that certainly good things can happen when you intervene abroad, but there's a bias, a heavy bias towards focusing on those good things and a presumption that the U.S. government or some world kind of world-dominating government needs to control things in order to have order. Mm -hmm. And I want people to reconceptualize that or at least broaden their conception of it, to recognize the bads, that there's bad, a lot of bads can emerge from that too, but it also by ex ante, both assuming and asserting that a, a government, now the American government, needs to control things, it forces out alternatives. It forces out even appreciating alternative paths to peace, the role of individuals, creativity, and so on. Mm. Um, who the book is written for? In some sense, it's written for everyone, I'll say. And I, I don't say that just to say like, oh, everyone should read it. Mm, I mean, mm, mm, it's mm. written for people interested in this, but mm. If you look at the blurbs, for instance, that you were mentioning earlier, the, the endorsements, one of the really fascinating things, I think, is that they are from across the ideological mm. spectrum. Mm. And one of the interesting things about this topic is you can find people who are more left-leaning or more right-leaning who are sympathetic to various parts of the arguments in the book. And so oftentimes people who are more right-leaning are highly skeptical of government programs domestically. Mm. They'll say – you know, education, healthcare, government's terrible at providing these things. But then when it comes to, to, to kind of foreign affairs, they'll say, well, they, the U.S. must engage in nation building to spread democracy and freedom. And you say, well, wait a second. Mm. If they're so bad at providing healthcare domestically or education, what makes you think they can go abroad and just plop down these very yeah. things abroad? Yeah, and then those who are more paradox. left – yeah. Yes, certainly. Yeah. And then those who are more left-leaning, and I realize I'm generalizing, but to, but for the sake of the, the discussion, I, the point we're discussing, I think it's okay. They'll oftentimes be quite concerned about corporate power, about cronyism, entanglements between large firms and government, and how that undermines the dynamism of markets, the ability of, of those who are outside of that orbit to benefit from the system. Yet they'll also endorse foreign interventions. Mm. Well, who carries out foreign interventions? A massive complex that in is, is defined by entanglements between government and private firms. Mm. And so mm. I think there's space for, for people of all ideological persuasions to find something in this discussion that hopefully will enlighten them or at least challenge their thoughts about foreign intervention, the necessity of a, of a world empire, but also the claims that you can have an empire and also have liberal values. Mm. And one of the kind of paradoxes I try to point out in the book is the, the very idea of a liberal empire is a misnomer because the very organization and kind of operation of empire is illiberal in its very nature. Yeah, and I definitely want to get to that. I, I think I have a particular question on that particular point. I just want to pick up on this, uh, on the kind of uh, Hobbesian uh, aspect of the world, because uh, th this is my conundrum. And I, and I, I, having read your book, I, I really see where you're coming from. My intuitive response is, and this is something I've spoken with uh, with Jason Pack about uh, uh, in a previous uh, episode. Uh, intuitively, I kind of feel like. I agree with the concept of the Leviathan uh, in the sense that, you know, the world or the nation uh, needs somehow a, uh, a centralized governance of, of duplication of power. 
if for no other reason but then to, I guess, assure that we have a response mechanism to those who seek to do us harm, notwithstanding the fact that we do it and exercise our power way too easily. Uh, in other words, we go to war way too easily. The Leviathan responds in order to prevent chaos or, you know, to, to keep us from the brutish uh, world uh, that Hobbes envisaged. So am I understanding you correctly in, in that we don't necessarily need to have the Leviathan at all, defined in whichever way, whether it's the, you know, a, a world government, whether it's the national government, uh, etc. Um, what, what do you mean? So I, I think there's a couple things. I, I do think we don't need those things, but I'll come back to the reason mm -hmm. why. What I do believe is that there are situations of conflict everywhere. Conflict is a ubiquitous part of human life mm. everywhere. Mm -hmm. Even in our own households, we have con mm. conflicts is when simply people's interests are at odds with each other. Mm. Well, like with Conf my three-year-old or your three-year-old. Uh, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Or, or yeah. one significant other or our coworkers. M moments of conflict happen daily to everyone. But fascinatingly, most situations of conflict are not met with or resorted through violence, mm. which we take for granted. So, so conflict is everywhere or almost everywhere, but the way we respond to it is an object of choice. And there's two ways to respond to it. We can resort to violence or we can find alternative means of navigating that conflict through peaceful channels. Mm. And the, the default when you empower a government at whatever level and say their role is military because absent that it's chaos, you're privileging violence or threat mm. thereof as a means of resolving conflict. And the fact that all of us navigate conflict – now, some people might say, well, no, that's because the state's in the background. You can call the police if, 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 yeah, they're, if people – yeah. you know, yeah. uh, maybe. But again, I, I think the prevalence of it, 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 it works so well in most of our lives that we take it for granted and we only notice moments of where it breaks down because they're outlier moments. Mm -hmm. So that, that to my – that's not – saying that doesn't mean that violence will never happen – but it, it, to my way of thinking, it calls into question the Hobbesian view of the world that everyone's out there to kind of – everything's negative some. Life is, is, is nasty, sh sh brutish, short, nasty, and, and so mm. on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, the, the other challenge is this. When you create a Leviathan the, in order to enforce order, that Leviathan by definition has to have enough power to enforce order. Mm, mm, so mm. then the challenge is, is who's going to look over the Leviathan? Because it just pushes the challenge up a level, which political philosophers have realized for centuries, right? Mm. This is the paradox of government, which is you create government to do certain things, uh, what's often called at a minimum kind of protective activities, yeah. police, courts, uh, military activity. But who's going to check them then? And in a Leviathan strong enough to scale up, to bring order to the world, is truly an entity of such awesome powers that there's no one that can constrain it. Mm, you might say, well, the domestically, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly, there's, there's and, and even internationally, yeah, the, the only yeah. way to constrain it perhaps is to have another Leviathan checking against yeah, it. Yeah. But that just leads to the elevation of violence because then you that, that leads to what political scientists call the security dilemma, which is mm. one side gets stronger in the name of defense and it makes others feel less safe. So then they ramp up in response and, and it cycles. And well, we're seeing that more play out right now on the on the exactly, you know, geopolitical exactly. chessboard. Yeah. So, so that's my that those are kind of some initial responses to to that train of thought. Um, mm. I, I certainly understand why people might push back against that and still fall down on the side of Leviathan, but that that's kind of where I stand on my thinking yeah. about that at the moment. 
I, and I see it uh, 100%. My, my, and I've spent some time thinking about this over the years and, and where my, I guess, reservation about that comes is, is having lived in a country like Sweden for three years where I, I think, and Sweden is not, not perfect, absolutely not. You know, none of the Nordics are, uh, but I think from how the society is structured and how power is delegated, it strikes me as though it's far more advanced uh, than, uh, you know, I often refer to, uh, you know, a country like Sweden as the West to the West uh, in its kind of enlightenment, so to speak. Uh, and, and also the way they train their police forces and how long it takes to even become a police officer. You know, the training takes two years for a police officer, uh, which is vastly different to what it is, say, in a country like Australia and definitely what it is uh, in the US, as I understand. And I think we see the results of how, and, and having seen how Swedish police interact with the uh, populace, is vastly different to how I've seen the police interact uh, with the populace in Australia, and certainly what I've seen on uh, footage. And you know, the world knows about the US. Uh, it just strikes me as a, as a perhaps they've hit a different balance, uh, or there's a different relationship between the state. Uh, and the citizen uh, than what we've come to understand uh, in the kind of anglophone part of the world. Uh, I wonder if you had have any experience uh, with that, or if you've you know, you know understand the kind of Nordics in in that way at all, or if that even rings any bells at all or resonates at all. Yeah, certainly. So I, I don't have direct experience, but you know, other than my my reading, so I'll I'll, I'll be silent on speaking about the details. Mm. Um, but but I think the broader point you make is 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 quite important which is we can envision different relationships between the citizen and the state or even amongst citizens. So you, you can imagine, because of course, one of the best checks on state power is, is, is civil society, genuine civil society, mm -hmm. not, not what I consider or, or oftentimes referred to kind of as faux or fake civil society, which is when Western oftentimes kind of financial foreign aid institutions like pay groups, mm -hmm. that's yeah. not ground up legitimate civil society Again, the way that people like right? yeah. Yeah, yeah like Alexis de Tocqueville and others thought about it but you know one of the things that I think is important uh, just I'll mention this before we move on is that conflict resolution is a skill it is not something that this goes back to your earlier point about war being a choice it's a skill that needs to be learned and exercised in all walks of life again we mm. learn this when we're kids parents say don't hit people don't take their stuff you need to work it out really they're getting you to conceptualize a notion of conflict resolution quite early in life. But we forget that when we're, we're adults, or at least those in positions of military or, or political power in the United States do, and they say, those people, usually referring to hundreds of millions of people, because they live in those geographic borders are our enemy. And mm. the only way to, con to have order is through threatening them or imposing something upon them. And what about just talking about things? What about diplomacy, negotiating? Now, that's mm. not – people come back and say that's such a utopian, yeah. naive view of the world. Mm. Just the opposite. Think about the, you know, the, 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 the difficulties of, of pursuing that course of action, but also the, the wonderful benefits of doing it, but the, the fact that it actually is a world of liberal values, of treating other human beings with dignity, uh, with uh, uh, having rights – and treating them as equals and mm. not simply saying because you live in China, because mm. you live in Russia, because you live – insert whatever country mm. – that mm. you're mm. our enemy because you happen to either reside there or be born there. And so to my way of thinking, the, the, 
that's much less of a challenge or a utopian vision that, that a small group of kind of experts can control the world. That's truly yeah. utopia. I mean, that's yeah. that's naive utopia to my way of thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it, it, it denies uh, motivations behind certain behaviors. We don't actually stop and think, well, why is China doing uh, what China's doing? Why is Russia doing what Russia's doing? Why is the Taliban doing what the Taliban's doing? Why are we doing what we're doing? Uh, and I think perhaps that last piece is the most important. We very rarely, if ever, are encouraged to take a mirror and look at ourselves and understand what is incentivizing our own behavior. Uh, because, of course, our own biases, you know, will make us believe that we're righteous, moral, um, you know, that we are the good guys and everybody thinks they're the good guy, uh, ultimately. So I think that's a, yeah, it's a really, really nuanced point. So we've mentioned a couple of times the American empire, but uh, perhaps it's useful. Uh, and I think for my audience, who uh, also recently I've uh, interviewed Sami Puri. I'm not sure if uh, if you're uh, familiar with that name, but he's a, he's a professor who really looks at uh, empires uh, and empires of the past and how the kind of uh, echoes of those empires of the past manifest today. Um, so maybe it's uh, useful just to hear from you how you define the American empire. Uh, and then also, why do some consider this to be a rather controversial description uh, of US foreign policy? Yeah, so America, and you know, in the book, I, I went back and forth about how to, how to characterize it and what terms to use. And there is a purely academic debate in political science that about what constitutes an empire or not. So I won't go through that. It's, it's, it's in a footnote in the book if people mm -hmm. are interested, the, the relevant kind of papers and different sides of it. The way I view it is that America is, is a certainly a unique empire because historically empires have been defined not just in terms of a broadcasting of military power and political power and economic power in other countries, but geographic acquisition. So, so mm -hmm. acquisition of geographic territory. And a lot of people, and this I think comes down to the second part of your question of, of why is it controversial calling it that, because some people say, well, America doesn't go around anymore and acquire territory. So in the kind of the early iterations, certainly continental expansion in the early to mid 19th century, so westward expansion in, in, in now what we call America, you know, the Spanish-American War, Th those earlier wars, okay, there was geographic territory that was acquired, but not now. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing, the, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about in a, earlier about the need for a, a, a unipolar kind of order, a, a government that controls everything. And from that standpoint, America is an empire from this standpoint, in, in my telling, it broadcasts its power around the world, military power, political power, economic power, and it actively uses those things. It's not like it just says, you know, free trade, you know, we're, we're going to let people trade. If they want to trade, they can. They, they, they are the, the, the elite, I'll call them the elite, elite mm -hmm. which I, 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 by that I, I mean the po key political actors that control things, but also private interests that are entangled with that, that, those political actors. That's when I say elite, that's the mm -hmm. word I'm using. Mm -hmm. Actively use that influence to achieve certain outcomes. And they have a, they, the, those elites have a series of client states around the world um, that they actively influence and pay off and bestow benefits upon to be part of their kind of network of, of order and control. The U.S. government has intervened around the world to influence political outcomes, to um, actively displace political leaders in order or to prop up existing political leaders who are 
aligned with their short-term policy goals. And so from that perspective, uh, that's what, what why I think the, the uh, American government is an empire. And by the way, I should say the other reason, which is, you know, you never – always arguing from authority is kind of a weak form of argument, but I'll, 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 mm-hmm. I'll rely on it for the moment. Defenders of a proactive U.S. foreign policy, call it that. Mm. So the historian Neil Ferguson at Stanford uh, or, or Harvard uh, uh, now calls it uh, the American empire. Deepak Lal, uh, who was a, a famous uh, economist in international economics, wrote a book called In Praise of American Empire. Uh, and, and so from their standpoint, and they embrace it. They say uh, they, they embrace on the logic that you and I were talking about earlier, mm. uh, uh, kind of Hobbesian world. We need someone to bring an order. It might as well be America because America believes in freedom and liberal values and much better that than kind of an authoritarian, illiberal government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I think, yeah, again, just to bring in Sami Puri, I mean, he, he, he describes it as the informal empire. So, you know, it doesn't have the kind of formality of uh, empires of the past, like you said, where it's a territorial acquisition. Uh, but if we look at it again through the lens of economics, uh, it might not be territorial, but it's certainly economic acquisition. You know, we look at incentives. Incentive behavior is incentivized by profit. And you've even alluded to before the idea of crony, uh, of cronyism or crony capitalism, and perhaps uh, might be useful to now link that to what we mean firstly by crony capitalism and then link that to uh, this other uh, big term, the military-industrial complex, uh, which uh, people have heard of, uh, many intuitively understand, uh, but we often also shy away from it as though it's uh, it's somehow conspiratorial. Uh, so maybe we can uh, we can delve into that a little bit. So firstly, describe what is meant by the, both these terms, uh, and then explain uh, how they might be connected. Sure. Well, you know, let me first say, which might might at first seem kind of contradictory to to, to some of the other points I've made, that I'm actually a huge fan of markets, of exchange, of profit, of mm-hmm. capitalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, and again, that strikes people as odd sometimes because of the points I'm about to raise about cronyism and some of the things I've said. But that all said, I also do not think those that type of, of economic system should be imposed on people and it, or can it be imposed on people? This goes to your point about kind of the development agencies. And I think when it you attempt to impose it on people, it actually undermines the desirable features of that system. I also don't think there's anything inherent in capitalism as a system that necessitates imperialism or empire. And some people do. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Lenin, of course, wrote a book on, on imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, and others before him had said that. And, and their view was coming from kind of a Marxist worldview, was that, look, the, the, the capitalists are going to exploit domestic profits and domestic workers. At some point, those are going to get run down. So they have to look abroad in order to get more profits. Mm. I don't think that's inherent in capitalism. I think it's inherent in entanglements between capitalism and government, which is what cronyism is. So when I talk mm. about cronyism, or some people call it political capitalism, what we have in mind is a system of entanglements between the public sector and private firms where private actors are able to earn profits, oftentimes substantial profits, by leveraging those political connections, by leveraging the the privileges that are offered to them by politics. Now, why does that matter? Contrast that with the situation of of a market where that doesn't exist, and how do you have to make money in a market, or how do you make money in a market where you're not getting government privilege? You need to convince other 
private buyers to turn over their hard-earned money for the product or service that you're offering them. Mm. So I have to convince consumers and say, hey, I am offering you something that I think will benefit you. Please buy it. That's a market, a, a private market, where government comes in and says, well, we can line your pockets if I have those relationships. Notice that the private consumer is out of the picture. You mm. no longer have to say, convince private consumers that you're improving their welfare. You now go to po politicians. Now, where do politicians get their money from? Taxpayers. But the taxpayers are, are circumvented in many ways because there's no direct link between paying your taxes mm. and producers. Mm. There's a lot of steps in, in the political system. And unseen. So yeah. That, yeah. yeah. So that's what cronyism is. Cronyism is uh, – it doesn't just exist in the military sector. It tends to exist in those sectors actually surprisingly and perhaps it, it's in contrast how people envision it. But it oftentimes, and I'll, I'll return to that moment, but it, it typically occurs most in those sectors where there's, there's the heaviest government involvement. Mm. Uh, and, and I say that's kind of contradictory to many people because many people say, well, we need more regulations on Wall Street and healthcare in the military sector. But you look at the areas where there's the heaviest concentrations of cronyism, it's those very areas. Mm. And the, you always, that doesn't, that's not an argument in itself against government regulation, but it is a word of warning which is that our, our natural inclination is to say whenever we see a problem, more government intervention. Mm. One of the downsides of government intervention, more government intervention, is it incentivizes large corporations to then influence government to both insulate themselves from regulations, but oftentimes to engage in what economists call regulatory capture, which is that if I know I'm going to be regulated, I'm going to do everything in my power to influence those regulations up front to benefit me. Mm, mm, and oftentimes mm. those very regulations undermine competition, mm. undermine protecting consumers precisely because if you think about it logically, who is in the best position both resource-wise but also in terms of the incentive to do that? Large corporations. Mm, you know, mm. it, it you're if you, if you said, "Well, we're going to we're going to have regulations about retail businesses." Walmart has an enormous bank account. They mm. have an entire team of lawyers and accountants. The small mom and pop shop has none of those things. They mm. have no voice in the political process or a very small voice. So you just need to be wary of these things. So how does that flow into the military sector? Well, the military sector, as I call it in the book, is peak cronyism. It's very root in, in, in America is cronyism writ large. And this came out of this, what we call the military industrial complex, came out of World War II. And it is the interplay between the private sector and Congress and government bureaus and special interests, the mm. defense sector. And the entire industry is based on these entanglements between these actors. Mm. And that leads to kind of predictable behaviors in many ways. So if I said, well, look, uh, uh, the – Profits of firms are dependent not on private consumers, but on becoming friendly with political actors. What do we expect? A lot of investment in maintaining political relationships, which mm. is precisely what we see in the, in the military sector. If I said, well, by, by the very design of the industry, there's very little competition because once you get a contract, you are the sole developer and provider of that. That's the definition of a monopoly. And mm. there's lock-in effects. Uh, uh, meaning that once you have a technology in place, there's an incentive to keep investing yeah. in it, oh. especially because where do politicians get money from? Not their own pockets. If you're a private business owner and you're investing in a project that's failing, you'll say, 
wait a second, I spent money, it didn't work out, but I better pull back because if I keep throwing good money after bad, we're going to keep getting bad results. In politics, what happens? Mm. You just keep funding it keep going. because yeah. you're using other people's money. You are, the, the, the private firms lobby you to keep it going. And as I talk about in the book, they strategically place production in areas to get support. So like you look at the F-35 fighter jet and, and production of all the different parts are spread throughout each state in America. Mm. And so then you start thinking about elected officials and what elected official wants to go home to their constituents and say, we're shutting down the factory that produces the wheels for the F-35 fighter jet because the project's a bust and I have to look out for the good of the, the nation. No mm. one's going to do no that. No one's going to do that. Yeah. yeah that's so and so yeah. you create these scenarios of kind of these two big to fail projects. And you know, it's almost in, in America, at least it's like the, a lot of this stuff is a running joke, but it's it's not a joke because of what's involved. But the kind of joke is like, oh, there's the military sector. Of course, it's wasteful. Of course, they can't keep track of, of how they spend their money. Well, we know, you know that they, now they, from they, Afghanistan, right? I mean, the, the, the numerous, uh, uh, well, the investigations that have gone into the spending uh, and a lot can't be accounted for. Millions and millions of dollars, mm, literally just mm. flying around. And, the, and that really gets at the heart of it. Going back to incentives, which is always ask yourself, who's responsible? Is there a tight chain of accountability? Mm. Uh, again, we know this from our, our personal lives. When everyone is responsible, no one is responsible. Yeah. Uh, and when you can shift blame and shift yeah. costs around, yeah. you're going to do that. And that's exactly what politicians do. And, and, and it's, ama- it's, it's, it's predictable behavior. Because if you look at what happens in, in, in other walks of life, if you didn't deliver on what you were going to do, you'd get your budget cut. Mm. You'd get penalized somehow. And in the United States, military budgets go up. You, you waste money. You literally spend millions and millions of dollars putting aside the harm that causes to people directly and indirectly in terms mm. of you know, harm to their person through the actual carrying out of war. And it's just people act like this is just a game where you can just throw money around and it's like – Ah, uh, you know, uh, we'll do better next time, kind of thing. That's and so it happens interesting. over and over. So yeah, it's so interesting because it, it again echoes something of uh, you know my childhood uh, living in a socialist Yugoslavia. You know, the, the joke was that was the joke. You know that you know you can freely spend money because no one's accountable, uh, and that's kind of uh, what happens in a in a socialist state where you know this is the 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 state is so powerful that and 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 securing a job uh, in the government uh, is basically a pension. 100% guaranteed and uh, you can never be fired. Uh, it, there's echoes of that in everything you're saying, which is really ironic, uh, given that we're talking about, you know, a liberal democracy. There are many other things that uh, spring to mind uh, immediately, and that is the revolving door um, idea. And, you know, it's, I, I have many friends of mine who've left uh, military service have basically just uh, you know changed the uniform and put on civilian attire uh, and are doing very much the same job uh, except you know oftentimes for double if not more uh, the money that they uh, that they now get and I can't blame them I don't this is certainly not intended in any way uh, to blame them and this is perhaps a, a point I want to make and uh, that leads me to a question and that is uh, that I know a lot of these people and I know a lot of them are driven by right motives in sen- in the sense that they truly believe they're doing the right thing, they're protecting the nation, they're serving the nation, uh, or they're continuing their service uh, outside of uniform. The same goes for development workers. I've met many of them in uh, Bosnia. I've met uh, many development workers uh, in Iraq. They, they, they really do believe they're doing the right thing, notwithstanding the fact that they're part of a much bigger machine 
or, or they're just a sim- they're, they're, they're one small cog uh, in a very, very big machine. Uh, so it's often very, very hard to see how one fits into the much bigger macro level picture. Um, and, and I think that's something you do talk about in the book. So, so is, is there anything you want to add to, to, to that idea of, uh, of the revolving door? Uh, but also I want to, I want to really touch on, on, on the kind of individual aspect of an individual. Uh, th- these aren't necessarily bad people, uh, but it might be, it might lead to bad outcomes. Yeah, so I think you nailed the logic of the revolving door. For those who don't know, it's the movement back and forth between the private sector and the government sector. And it's not it's not based on malicious motives at all. It's logical. You know, if you're going to have someone in – if you're a private firm and you need to get contracts from the military and there's this whole bureaucratic apparatus to get them, who knows the best how to get them? People that have lived through it. They, they understand it. And if you are on the government side and you are going to regulate private industry, who's the best person to regulate it? People that have been in the industry and know it. Now, just think about, think about it logically. You, know, you don't have to be an expert in these areas. All of us have social networks, and all of us rely on those social networks, and we show biases towards people in those networks because they're our friends, they're our acquaintances. And it's the same there. So you're going to tend to show biases and have connections towards people you know, and you have those connections with, and that's the logic of it. That's that's absolutely natural. Yeah. Yeah. We do it in all walks of life. It's just that in certain areas, it has different effects than in in other areas of life. Um, And so this goes to your point about it not being bad people. They're just acting like human beings in a different institutional setting. In terms of the good and bad people, you know, I've thought a lot about this. And analytically, I always try my best to assume, hold, the easy arguments are good people do good things, bad people do bad things. And then there's Mm. really no argument to be had. It's just true by definition in some sense. But I do think we can look at selection mechanisms. And so let's think about it like this. The thing you and I just talked about all right, they, must, they might have good intentions and be good people and they just interact in this environment. But I think there are certain positions in empire and what it requires. And I talk about this a little bit in the book that does require a certain type of person. Um, you know, the, what mm. I mean by that is once you start doing harm, like, so there's a lot of cogs in the machine, as you put it, in this entire, it's an enormous apparatus. Mm, mm, but there's mm. also people that need to do things. You need to kill people. You need to torture people. And that takes a certain kind of person. Uh, uh, Many people, if I said to them, go torture another human being, and they're actually put in that position, they wouldn't be able to do it. They would Mm. be repulsed and, and, and hopefully morally would be torn about it. That takes a certain kind of person. And you need to, so, so the, the very running of empire needs to have people in charge and people that carry out orders that are willing to do certain things that I think are oftentimes quite repugnant. Now, mm. some people say that's – again, if you have a very Hobbesian view of the world, you'll say you need to do that. That's just – you know, you need to be able to do that, and there has to be people that are tough enough in order to do that because that's what – you need to bring order to the world. But, but also you train for it. You also train for it. You, you become that's desensitized. The other thing. You know, exactly. That, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that, that's a lot of military training is to mm. desensitize, desensitize. But the very way of view – the other reason I, I don't like the kind of Hobbesian view of the world and, and I don't like the nation-state view of the world is it treats people as – collectives. It mm. lumps them all together. Uh, throughout, in America, you are either – and you even hear this in the rhetoric yeah. of politicians. Think back to George W. Bush. Yeah. You're either with us or you're against us. It's a very – it's a very yeah. – yeah. exactly. It's a very mm. blunt dichotomy. Mm. And yeah. it, there's in-groups and there's out-groups. And notice what that does. If you have any 
resistance or questioning, then then somehow you're you're evil and against liberty and against patriotism mm-hmm. and against your country. Even mm-hmm. now in America, for many people, if they even go back to an earlier, which I think is quite reasonable question that you asked, which is why is Russia doing what they're doing? Why mm-hmm. is China doing what they're doing? Why did the Taliban do what they what they did or and and are doing? Mm-hmm. Somehow that that means the very question of that means you're un-American mm-hmm. or unpatriotic, mm-hmm. which to my way of thinking is just the opposite. The good patriot is always questioning and skeptical, not because they have kind of a a, a default position of disliking their country, but just the opposite. They want to protect those cherished freedoms. And so that's... If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode and gain access to all of the episodes of The Voices of War, simply become a subscriber using the link in the show notes. As you know, I will not feature any ads on the show, which is made possible solely through the support of our subscribers. If you find value in the content, you can become one now.